Well, last week we started back into Mark chapter 4, and we did so with a pretty familiar text. Mark 4 was the parable of the sower and the four soils, right? Thank you very much, Josiah. It's nice to be known. What we heard from that parable was that Jesus wants us not simply to listen to good stuff. Remember, in every one of the examples, it's the same seed. In every one of the examples, it's the same sower doing the seed. That's not what's really being evaluated, is it? So with the assumption that good seed is going out, with the assumption that there is a sower who's faithfully putting that good seed out there, the question coming out of last week was, what happens inside the heart, inside the soil of the one who's actually hearing? And Jesus said, in order to bear fruit, what has to happen is that you have to receive it. To use the, the agriculture analogy, you need to receive it not in a shallow way, but deeply down in so that when thorns come, when the heat comes, there's something that rises up that, that cannot be choked out and that cannot wither simply in difficulty and in persecution. That said, listen to this story of a man named Dr. William Leslie. He was a medical missionary around the time when he lived in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, medical missions was really starting to gain some traction and become uh, sort of a popular way of getting into other countries. Not just to come and say, hi, I'm a missionary. I'd like to come into your country. But hi, I'm a doctor. I'd like to come into your country and I'm going to bring the gospel with me. Where Leslie went was to the Congo. And after 17 years, he returned to the U.S. really discouraged. Now, I want you to think about that guy. For 17 years, this wasn't the first country he had gone to. He had actually met his wife on the mission field. He had been in two other countries prior to that. But for 17 years, he went back into a region called the Vanga in Congo, and he faithfully worked to do what he thought the Lord had called him to do. Sadly, by the end of those 17 years, it was actually the region, the regional like elders and leaders that asked him to leave. It was not just him leaving, but him leaving in the midst of a conflict. And he came back home kind of with his tail between his legs, really disheartened. Now, let's say that we've traveled back in time, and Ryan just read that passage, and Dr. Leslie's sitting here in the, in the front row. He's not coming to speak. He's not coming to share the glories of everything, but he's just returned this Sunday, and he hears from the Old Testament, if you shine out the way you're supposed to, nations will come to your light. He then hears words from Jesus that says, I haven't given you light so that you put it under a bed or put it under a basket. I want it to do what it's called to do and to shine forward. How does he receive that text? How should he, to be faithful to what we heard last week, let that kind of word sink deeply into his heart? Because if I'm coming away from 17 years of something like that, and that's the way it ends, I've got to be asking the question, how does, how does God see me in his kingdom? 
Medical missions was supposed to be the way that the gospel was going to go out to the unreached. This was going to be the answer. I heard all these other success stories of other doctors who did this. I'm a doctor. I tried to do it, and I didn't just give up. I did it faithfully for a long time, and then I got booted out by the people who I was trying to serve. How do you let this word settle down into your heart? Ryan read one parable. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus has gotten onto a boat. Everybody's kind of around, and he's giving this first parable. But that wasn't the only parable. Verses 1 to 20 were the parable of the soils. There are three other parables we're going to look at this morning. Ryan read the first. The connection between them is that God wants to let how he sees you in the kingdom, which is what these next three parables really describe. How does God view you as a part of his kingdom? And he wants to let his perspective of us, rather than our perspective of us, kind of settle into us. And so this first one that I want us to take a look at is the one that Ryan read. The first picture that we get of how God views us as members of his kingdom has this light analogy continued from the Old Testament. He says that we are lamps with an uncontainable purpose. Isaiah chapter 60, one more time. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness covers the earth, but nations will come to your light. The question in this, I think that we want to think through, because Jesus said in verse 21, is a lamp to be put under a basket or it's under a bed? No, clearly not. Nothing's hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And so the question that's there is not how do we speak, interestingly enough, right? If I were to just take verses 21 and 22 and give them to you out of context and say, what's the main thing you think God wants to do with you? You might start talking about what you do. You might start talking about what you say. That's what it means for your light to shine. We can get there, but look at what Jesus says makes the difference in whether or not we are light under a bed or we are light under a basket or we're light out there ready to shine for everyone. He says, it's how you listen, repeating the point from last week that seems to make a difference before you think about what you're to share. He says then in verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, Jesus isn't disconnecting this second parable from the one we heard last week. Instead, he's kind of expanding it, right? Now, as Jesus often does, he mixes his metaphors. Last week, we're talking about plants and how plants grow. Now we're talking about light and what light accomplishes. But it's the same point. It's the same takeaway. When you hear truth, you have to be be very careful what you do with that truth. It's amazing to think about how much we hear. And Jesus says... That if you are careful with the way that you hear, what will happen? Apparently, you'll shine. 
It's just like the point last week. If you are careful with the way that you hear, apparently you'll bear fruit. Now let me ask the question. What do you have to do to shine? Or to use the parable last week, what do you have to do to bear fruit? Think about a tree. What does a tree do so that it bears fruit? How can you tell when the trunk of a tree is flexing, when the branches are grunting in order to produce the fruit? How can you tell when a candle is from the wax on up working so hard just to get all that light out there? I can't tell. Because a burning candle just burns. A glowing lamp just glows. And a fruitful tree is just fruitful. I'm not saying be lazy, guys. But I am saying there is zero effort to all the fruit bearing that I see from the first analogy. And there's zero effort that I see for all the light glowing shiningness of the second analogy. There's effort to be had. And it's what you do with the word of God. But it seems to me that the work of bearing fruit is in the power of the seed and the receptivity of the soil. That the work of shining light is in the nature of the light and the positioning of the lamp. That's it. And if, if I'm like you, and I kind of hope that it's in this way we are, or else I'm going to preach the next like five minutes of the sermon just to me. I find that incredibly freeing. Because here's what I hear Jesus saying to me in chapter one, 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25. Darren, light is something you don't understand. And seeds are something you don't really understand either. But if you allow the truth of who I am, what I'm doing, what I've promised, to get buried deep inside you, I will produce through that process something you couldn't have done or couldn't have imagined. We talked about this analogy when we've been in 1 Corinthians before, but I want you to think about it again. If you take a child who really likes eating apples or who really likes eating peppers, right? You cut up an apple, you cut up a green pepper or bell pepper for them. They really enjoy it. I said, where where do you think this came from? He said, well, I have no idea. He said, well, okay, let me cut this apple open for you. You see this tiny little seed? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this tiny little seed and we're going to put it in the dirt. And eventually over time, lots of time in an apple's case, but eventually this little seed will turn into something bigger that produces more apples. What would you think the child would think? You think the child would think that either the seed turns and grows into a much bigger seed and all of a sudden, what, like apples come out of it or something like that, right? Remember, this is a child. They just don't know the world. Or if I cut the pepper and I take the pepper and I tell them we're going to plant this pepper into the ground and this seed is going to grow, what's going to happen? Well, 
maybe the seed will turn into a bigger seed and then it'll, I don't know, you hit it with a hammer or something and it just breaks apart into peppers. I, that's not what happens at all, right? You guys have been alive long enough to know that a seed has this massively radical transformation that if you just looked at the seed, you'd, you'd have absolutely no idea of understanding how this works. But a seed grows into a plant. The plant goes through a process where it bears fruit and all of a sudden at the end of the day, there's an apple or there's a pepper. How crazy amazing is that? But at any point, does the seed work hard? Not really, it doesn't seem. At any point, does the plant seem to work really hard? Not really from what it seems. The seed just makes sure that it goes into the dirt. The plant just makes sure that it stays in the dirt. And fruit comes out. Think about light in the same way. A string is dipped into wax over and over and over and over again. And then something happens between flint and rock and a spark or something along those lines. And then a fire and a fire can be transferred to this thing. What is that fire itself? I don't know. When it's done, it seems to produce all this soot, but it really is hot, but it's not a liquid. It's not a solid. It's something I can't explain, but when it touches that string dipped in wax or when it touches this wick dipped down into oil, it just produces something inside the lamp. Can the lamp really do anything except for to contain it? It doesn't. Now, you guys are all kind of looking at me like, yeah, duh. So let me make it as simple as I can in the Christian life. Do you realize how little you have to do to actually produce fruit in your life? Do you realize how little you actually have to do to shine forth for the kingdom of God? These analogies are not about the power of the wick, the power of the lamp. They're about the fact that God does something powerful inside those who are available. That's it. The miracle of what God is going to do, just to use the analogy from last week, and now to focus a little bit more on this analogy with the lamps, we have an uncontainable purpose. And that is to make a difference in a world that is growing increasingly dark. What do we have to do? How are we going to do this? I don't know, but as far as I can tell, Jesus says this. Just pay attention when I'm talking to you. That's what you have to do. So when you open up the Bible in the morning, just pay attention. When you're singing song and truth comes through that song because the song has been based on scripture and it's carrying that truth, and God says, hey, I'm trying to get your attention through this song for a sec. Well, then pay attention to what you hear. And you know what God's going to do? Something you couldn't possibly have imagined or created all on your own. What will it look like for your brightness of a light to shine? I don't know. How many people will be drawn to that light? I I don't know. But I know that Jesus says this, when light and darkness meet, light wins. End of story. You don't have to create the light. You just have to be available through the process of how you hear when God is saying something to you so that you are, by the the sort of the burden of verse 24, paying attention to what you hear and then let God do what he's going to do through the process.
Here's who you are according to the kingdom of God. You are lamps with an uncontainable purpose. Lamps that don't work too hard, but lamps that accomplish a lot. That's why not only is this an Old Testament analogy and a gospel analogy, but it's one that ultimately kind of, kind of carries the day whenever God has completed his work in Revelation chapter 21. We read, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk in the kingdoms of the earth, bring their glory into it. So how is the Old Testament promise going to be fulfilled and how will light always shine in the kingdom of God? It's not a light you create. It's a light created by the glory of God, which amazingly, like fire placed into a lamp, has been given to every believer. What do I do? Just make a big deal of Jesus in your life and then just don't be ashamed about it. So when he says something to you, it doesn't matter if it's hard or easy. Let the glory of God shine across in you because you're saying, wow, this is amazing. How could I do this? I don't know. You're listening to the word of God right now. Right now. We're here. We're looking at it. It's on the screen. It might be in your lap. It might be on your phone. You could go home. You could read this again. And then tomorrow when somebody says, what'd you do this weekend? Don't tell them about Friday. Don't tell them about Saturday. Tell them about this. I listen to God. That'll get their attention. Well, what did he say? He said, this world is incredibly dark and lonely and hurting. And he said that he's the only answer. And boy, that was a reminder I needed. And, you know, if a conversation, you know, kicks off from there, well, that wouldn't be so bad. And on Wednesday, if you go into work and somebody says, hey, what'd you do this morning? What'd you do? What are you thinking about? Oh, this morning I opened up the Bible and I was in a different spot. And boy, I'm really wrestling. I don't really understand what this is, but I tell you what, I'm trying to pay attention to what God's telling me right now. I just wonder what kind of conversations could possibly come out of those sorts of openings. And then we don't have to do a lot because we already know the end of the story. You know where all the light's going to come from? It's going to come from the lamb. It's going to come from him. And if he's been given to us, then a holy God is making his people holy and we'll shine. It's all the effort we got to put into this one, guys, is to pay attention to what we hear. Because God says we're lamps with an uncontainable purpose. First parable. Second parable. Let's turn to that one. This one's going to feel a little new. And he said, the kingdom of God, remember this is the good news in Mark, is that the kingdom of God is here. So he's describing what life is like when the king has arrived and the kingdom is being established. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on, okay, so he's back to the seeds again. But here's what he wants us to know this time. In the seed analogy, this round, we're not the soil We're the farmers. We're farmers with an unexplainable harvest. So he continues in verse 27. There's a man, right, who's scattered seed on the ground. What's he do? He sleeps. And he rises night and day. 
Here's the activity of the farmer. Go to bed, get up. Go to bed, get up. Go to bed, get up. That's what he does. You know what else happens? The seed sprouts and grows. And he has no idea how it happened. The kingdom of God is as if a man should satter skied on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. <coughs> to twist the knife a little, to press our inability to do anything other than sleep and watch, he keeps going. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's your job as light? Let God put, or as a lamp. Let God put light in it and just shine. What is our job as farmers, which is the second way that God sees us in his kingdom? Our job is to rest while God does something we can't explain. Because in God's kingdom, we are farmers with an unexplainable harvest. God's been doing this kind of agricultural work. Isaiah 57 uses the exact same analogy. Listen to it. It says, my beloved, this is Isaiah talking about God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So something's coming up, but it's not useful. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. That's been, that's been part of the problem. God's diagnosed it over a number of different ways. When God looks back on his people in the Old Testament, sometimes he says, I'm like a husband and you guys are like a wife who's really immoral. It's great being married, do you? If you don't stop, honestly, I'm not sure we're going to continue. It's a weird analogy. It's a tough one, but it, it paints a picture, doesn't it? The point in that one is that God's in the right and we're in the wrong. Same thing kind of happens here in this vineyard analogy. God's done all the work so that the, the seed ought to grow up and, and produce these grapes and there ought to be a really good yield, but it yields instead wild grapes. And God says, yeah, the vineyard of the Lord is Israel and Judah. They're the ones he's planted. They're the ones he expects to see some stuff from. And he looks around for justice and instead all of his people are killing each other. It is just messing with the whole system. Now, if you're one of the religious leaders, you know, if you're a, you know, a king in Israel, you know that God uses you at times in order to be able to enact policy changes or to deliver prophetic announcements so that the people who hear these things and live under these things live differently and obey God better, right? That's kind of the way it's often been throughout the Old Testament. But as you enter in now to this parable, God isn't ignoring all the problems of a harvest, but he's taking us out of the picture 
altogether. Interestingly, does a farmer do anything aside from sleep and get up? Of course he does. He was part of one of the ones who tilled the ground. He's part of one of the ones who cleared the rocks. He's part of one of the ones who fertilized. He's part of one of the ones who went through the whole process, right? But the way this farmer is summed up in the way that God wants us to view how things actually grow in his kingdom is that we do nothing. The farmer's job description, according to this, should be probably very offensive to most farmers. Go back and see what he does. The kingdom of God is it's a man who should sat or skied on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. God eliminates out of the picture all the stuff the farmer does, the watering and the weeding and the fertilizing. And he makes this simple point. God grows and produces fruit in the kingdom of God in such a way that we should be amazingly restful as his workers. Now I take these two parables together and I'm a little tempted towards just sort of apathy. I take the two parables together. The lamp doesn't create the light. It just shines it forth. The light's got to come from somewhere else. The seed's going to grow up out of the ground. The farmer just gets to go to bed and amazingly it grows through the night. He wakes up and he's like, that wasn't there yesterday. I love being a farmer. There's more to the farming life, but the analogy Jesus says here is, what if all you were doing was reading God's word and seeing what was happening? What if all you were doing was resting and seeing what God does? What if that was the approach you took to the Christian life? Because that's how God sees you. He sees you as lamps with this purpose that's just uncontainable. He sees you as farmers with this harvest that they just can't explain. I find these two parables put together not to be incredibly burdensome for me, but actually incredibly freeing. Let's just apply these to a couple areas of life. Let's say that you've got a bunch of friends and you've been trying to be a faithful believer. Sometimes in the midst of them you are, sometimes in the midst of them you're not. But you just don't see a lot of good fruit coming. Let's say you're a mom who's been trying to raise your kids. You, you're largely aware of all the responsibilities you have outside the home, and you're aware of the responsibilities you have with your kids, and you're just like, what is going on? Why, why is this not working? Let's say you've got co-workers that you've been trying to be sort of faithful to. Let's say you've got family members, brothers and sisters that you've been trying to be faithful to. Let's say you just look at your own soul. And you're hoping for some real fruit. And more often than not, you see wild grapes and thorns. And it's just burdened by it. There are other sermons for the activity of what, you know, kind of we're called to and how we're called to be faithful. But that's not today's sermon. Today's sermon is that as one tilling the ground around you, you get to rest and trust that God is at work even though not everything has happened to completion today. I love the way it ends. The earth produces by itself. Not an immediate harvest, but first a blade, then an ear, then a full grain in the ear, and then the grain is ripe, and then the sickle. That means he's resting for a long time. 
Not just a little retreat from all the activity, but there is an attitude of rest that gets to permeate the workers in the kingdom of God because we are not just lamps with an uh, sort of uncontainable light. We are farmers with an unexplainable harvest. Jesus said in John 4, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. It's not just Jesus using an agricultural metaphor. That's also Jesus referring back to an Old Testament reality. Remember when the Israelites came up out of Egypt? Wandered, one generation died in the wilderness. Next generation came up. Moses, right before he dies, reminds them, God is going to send you into a land, and let me tell you where you grew up. You grew up in the wilderness. Guess where you're going? You're going to Canaan, and you know what's going to be there? Vineyards you didn't plant. Houses you didn't build. Fields you didn't cultivate. A life is waiting for you you didn't actually produce for yourself. Jesus is saying to his disciples here in John 4, look up around you. There's a harvest of people ready to be cultivated for the kingdom of God, and you didn't do anything. And that sounds great until you realize that what John 4 is, is the moment when Jesus is in Samaria talking at the woman at the well. The passage continues. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. You see, the flip side to resting and trusting God is that you don't get to tell God where he's going to be fruitful. Jesus would have loved if he was fruitful in Nazareth, and it didn't work out that way. The disciples would have loved if Jesus was received by all the religious elite down in Jerusalem. It didn't work out that way. But Jesus said, you guys get to be the ones who benefit as farmers from a harvest you didn't produce. And I just want you to know, it's in Samaria. That's where we're going. So the good news is you don't have to do the work. The tough part of this might be that the Lord might bring in nations to his light. The Lord might produce a harvest among people that you might not have planned out if you were in charge. So the good news is you're not in charge. And the bad news is you're not in charge. But when God calls you to shine, you don't pick the darkness, you just shine. And when God produces a harvest, you don't get to pick the field, you just pick up your sickle. So we're lamps, we're farmers, and thirdly, we're seeds. So Jesus is just mixing up all of our metaphors, but let's receive this last one as well. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? Well, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet when it's sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. If in the beginning I feel a call to sort of chill a little bit because God produces the light, and if the second one I feel a little bit of a call to chill because God produces the harvest, 
In this case, I get to chill because God chooses the timing. I've told you before, I would have rewritten our history very differently. And in some ways, I'd probably rewrite our present differently. And then I read this. And I hear God's call to chill out. Because he says, it's okay to be little. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be unimpressive. It's okay not to be able to have everything that would seem like you're going to produce the best. But there's a flip side to this one too. And it comes right in the beginning of verse 32. You know what happens to a seed when it's a seed when it's sown? It dies. Jesus in John 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feasts were some Greeks. These came to Phyllis, who was from Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus knew that something significant was happening. The Gentiles were starting to come to him. If the Samaritans were one thing, the Gentiles are another. And yet Jesus knows that this simple request, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sort of with the, could we also see Jesus? We wish to see Jesus too. Can we play? Can we be a part of this? We'd also like to come. And Jesus realizes there's a shift that's taking place now. And it's going to ultimately lead to his death. But in the meantime, it's going to call for the slow death of his disciples. And so he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the story of the death of Jesus and the death of the disciples unfolds slowly in John from John chapter 12 on. But understand, that's behind this parable that we read in Mark 4. Let's go back and just read it again. With what shall we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth, but then it dies. That's another way to read verse 34. Or 32. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. When it's sown, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it's sown, if it's planted, that's how it bears fruit. And once again, I hear good news and tough news in a very simple parable. We're lamps, we're farmers, and here we're seeds. Seeds, good news, with an unexpectedly massive yield. The possibility that God will do something in a way we can't measure, we can't see. And this isn't unique to Jesus, right? The author of the book of Hebrews tells us there are so many people of faith. And these people of faith often did things without even knowing what God was going to do. In fact, I don't even think you can point to an Old Testament character who knew what the New Testament was going to look like. That's why Paul calls it a mystery. Because it was hidden to people. 
Sometimes things worked out well for them in the Old Testament. Sometimes it just didn't. This is what it looks like for us to fall into the earth and die as part of the kingdom of God. To think that God might work through your weakness without any promise that you'll see how it'll end. Jesus said, continuing that parable in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world keeps it. That's the deal. You want to know what it looks like to be a small little seed that dies? Don't love this life. Don't love everything you get out of this life. And don't seek to preserve and build the size of your seed before you die. Instead, if anyone serves me, he will follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Because Jesus looked so small. And at the point of his crucifixion, his followers looked so weak. But let me show you a picture. Kind of an interesting looking building here. In 2010, a team led by Eric Ramsey with Tom Cox World Ministries made a shocking and sensational discovery. They found a network of reproducing churches hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle in Vanga, Congo. With the help of the Mission Aviation Fellowship, Ramsey and his team flew into Vanga two and a half hours from any central area. After they reached Vanga, they hiked miles into along the river and used dugout canoes to cross a half-mile-wide expanse. Then they hiked with backpacks another 10 miles into the jungle before they reached the first village of the Yansi people. Based on his research, he thought they might have a little bit of exposure to the gospel. Maybe just a hint, because he knew he thought from some record that somebody had been there at some point in time, and he was totally unprepared for what he found. He says, when we got there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir. They wouldn't call it that, but they wrote their own songs. They'd have sing-offs from village to village. They found a church in each of the eight villages they visited scattered across 34 miles. Ramsey and his team even found this! A thousand-seat stone cathedral in one of the villages. This church had become so crowded by the 80s with many walking miles and miles to attend that they decided to start their own church planting network. Now, there's no Bible in the Yancey languages, so they used the French Bible, and those who taught then had to be fluent or learn to speak French. These are people learning to speak a language so they can read the only Bible they've got so they can teach people the only hope that they've got. And nobody knew his name. Not Ramsey. Nobody knew the name of Dr. William Leslie. They had some reference to a guy decades ago who had been there. 
And when he got back, it took digging and digging and digging to find record of William and Clara who built this vision in the late 1800s and saw it through to his ultimately dishonorable departure 17 years after being in Van Gogh. If he comes back, I can't preach that. I can't preach the second half of that illustration to him, can I? I can't tell Dr. Leslie, Dr. Leslie, please understand that in 17 years, here's what's going to happen. I can't give that sermon. Just like I can't preach the 17 year out from now illustration of your life. I can't tell you what things are going to turn out like. I can't tell you how God is going to use the mustard seed like weak faith that you feel like you currently have and what God is going to do. I can't tell you what God's going to do 17 years later into the future of this church. But I can say this. You get to rest today. You get to read God's word tomorrow. And you get to recall this wonderful reality that God does things we can't explain with power that didn't originate with us in the first place. We get to be seeds. We get to be farmers. We get to be lamps. So verse 33, here's how it ends. With many such parables... He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Guys, 2,000 years later, we still get this explanation of what's going on. How richly has Jesus provided for us lamps and farmers and seeds? How many invitations do we get? So let me ask you three questions. These are in your bulletins. I'm just asking the three-point questions at the end. What if this week we just read God's word, not to master it, not to be able to figure out how to, not for everything, but just eager for it to shine forth from us? What if that's just the way you open up the Bible this week? You just read, eager to pay attention to what you hear, trusting that God's going to make it shine forth. What if not only do we read God's word that way, but we rested in God's work that way? What if this way, the way you approached your label was the way a farmer goes to sleep and wakes up, and that's the summation of your responsibility because the real powerful work is done by God. So we are resting in his work, amazed at watching what he can do. And what if we then just recalled God's ways? We just remembered that the way God works is often to take the smallest things, do amazing transformation through them, and bring about fruit and results we could never expect when we looked at the original thing. We can be weak, small people with weak, small faith in a weak, small church, but if we recall God's ways, we can be overwhelmed by life that only he provides. So please don't come away from these three churches, or these three parables, worried about what God's doing in you, worried what God's doing in this church. Let's just read. Let's rest. Let's remember. Let's just be overwhelmingly impressed by God together. Let's pray. We're going to sing. Father, I thank you for these parables. I thank you for the way that you have rejuvenated my faith through them. I thank you, Lord, for uh, working with the weakness of this sermon through the strength of your word and by the power of your spirit producing real fruit in us. And so, Father, I pray. Would you help us to trust that you bring the light and we get to shine? 
that you produce growth and so we get to sleep. And ultimately, that you're not worried about size right now and strength right now because the transformation you bring is something we get to enjoy without being able to explain. Father, may we be found faithful to pay attention to what you've told us so it can make a difference and bear fruit and shine forth from us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.